This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open sourced Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at Sentry.io. Hey everyone, welcome to another Ruby Rogues podcast. I'm David Kimura, and today on our panel we have David Richards. Hello. Eric Berry. Hey! A new panelist, Nathan Hopkins. Hello. And today we have a former panelist as a guest on our show today, Jason Sweat. Hello. So, Jason, uh, since you've been off the show for a bit, why don't you tell us what you've been up to and how things are going? What have I been up to? Well, I started my own podcast, the Ruby Testing Podcast. So I've been doing that for the last uh, few months. I started that in May of 2018. We're recording this in October 2018. So that's one thing. I also started this new website, codewithjason.com, where I teach testing. So Rails testing has kind of been my focus over the last uh, six months or so. Cool. And you also released a course, didn't you? Yeah, that course was a total flop. Uh, <laughs> only like two people bought it. So... It doesn't exist anymore, but I'm doing uh, live workshops now. Cool. Nice. Yeah, now, now I, I, I'm going to push back a little bit on a total flop because I would bet a nickel that you learned more from creating that course than just about any, anything you've done in the last six months. Is that, is that fair to say? Sure. I'd say like during this whole endeavor of teaching testing, I've learned a lot. I'm not sure if that particular course taught me a whole bunch, but definitely the endeavor of teaching testing has, has helped. And in the in the course of doing any of this kind of stuff, you're going to have a few missteps along the way. Yeah, absolutely. So our talk today is about testing. So why don't you kick us off and tell us what is testing, why it's important, and why we should drink the Kool-Aid? Great question. <laughs> so what is testing? That's, that's a question that I haven't uh, pondered in a while. But, you know, obviously, anytime you ship something, you're going to have to test it in one way or another whether that's manual testing or automated testing. I look at automated testing as just another thing that we have to have to do one way or another and might as well automate it just like we automate everything else. And so if we are testing our code, what does that look like? Are we using some other kind of product or service or are we diving much more into the actual language that we're writing our code in? I'm not sure exactly what you mean, but with my Rails projects, you know, I'm, I'm writing tests at various levels. I'm, I'm testing, I'm writing tests at a fine grain with model tests. Then I'm writing a different set of tests at a coarser grain with, with feature tests. I don't know if that speaks to your question or not, but that's kind of how I approach it. Okay. So 
by a show of hands here, who has ever done like complete code coverage on your API backend, but your front end application has like zero tests other than a few feature tests? I've worked right, on I'll, projects like that. Me almost every time. <laughs> Same here. So what different type of tests are there? Good question. So there's a lot of different kinds of tests and there's kind of no consensus on testing terms in the industry. So one term that one person uses might mean something else to a different person. Two people might know the same thing by two different names, that kind of thing. But I'll briefly touch on, on some of the most common types of tests that I use. Probably the best place to start is unit tests versus integration tests. So unit tests are at a really fine grain and you test just one thing at a time. So you might just test like one tiny aspect of one particular method. And if you're talking about true unit tests, uh, that's not going to hit anything external like a database. It's not going to hit any kind of URL. It's not going to use a network request, anything like that. You're just testing one tiny bit of code in total isolation. And if there's any dependencies, you're mocking out those dependencies. So that's unit testing. And then integration testing is when you're testing one or more things together or you could be testing your whole entire application stack. So those are two kinds. And then there's a whole bunch of other terms, like you guys can probably help me out remembering all kinds of different testing terms, but there's acceptance tests, feature tests, system tests, Smoke a whole tests. bunch of different terms. Yeah. So what's the right one? Good question. The kind of tests you're writing depends on what kind of coverage you're going for. So I think it's a good idea to have both unit tests and integration tests for this reason. Uh, so you guys might've seen this, uh, this testing pyramid idea. You could find like a diagram on the Martin Fowler website where at the base of the pyramid, there's a large number of fine grain unit tests. And at the top of the pyramid, there's a small number of coarse grain integration tests. So I'll tend to write an integration test that tests like the happy path for a feature. Like for example, if I have a uh, signup page for a user, I might write an integration test where there's a valid email, valid name, click submit, verify that the subsequent page has a success message. Then I might also write a test that says uh, maybe blank email address, valid name, click submit, verify that there's a validation error present on the page. I won't do all sorts of edge cases in that test. Like I won't test uh, putting 10,000 zeros into the email field or typing an email address that's valid, but with a trailing space or something like that. Those kind of edge cases I will test, but I'll do that at the unit level. And the reason for that is because unit tests are relatively inexpensive to write and to run. They're usually quicker to write and, and faster to run, whereas integration tests are more costly in, in both those two ways. Uh, so I think a mix of different kinds of tests is appropriate. What other types of anti-patterns do you see in tests or test strategies from, from people? I mean, I'm also curious to hear your narrative of what led you into specializing in tests and teaching others how to do it. Yeah, great questions. Okay, so what led me in, into testing? And then your other question was? Uh, what 
anti-patterns uh, do you see people applying in their test strategies? Yeah, so I had this guy on my podcast recently. I'll address the anti-patterns one first. He had this whole like big, long, comprehensive blog post about testing anti-patterns. Okay, the guy's name is Costas Capilonis. And I was pretty much nodding my head in agreement when we went down this whole list of, of anti-patterns. So one that I'll start with is um, having flaky tests. So I'm sure we've all worked on code bases where we run the test suite, maybe locally, or we run it in CI, and one test fails. And somebody's like, oh, just, just run it again, and maybe it'll pass the second time. And then you run it again, and it passes. And then a few runs later, something randomly fails. And the solution always is just to run the test suite again. And maybe it'll pass the second time, which often it does. Have you guys ever worked on the test suite like that? I have. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So the solution to that is not, not to just keep running it until it passes, but to actually stop and, and address it. And addressing it can either mean squashing that that flapping test, like fixing the root cause so that test doesn't flap anymore, or um, just deleting that test. Because having a deleting the test and not having that distraction of the flapping test anymore is, in my opinion, better than having having this distracting flapping test. And you guys can feel free to chime in at any time because I'm sure you guys have opinions on this stuff too. Like, what have you guys done in those cases where you have a a flapping test in your test suite? For me, what's happened, I, I often ignore it until I feel bad. <laughs> and then I realize, wait a minute, I'm a professional. And then I come and I handle it. And I realized the reason I was avoiding it was there was a piece of the system I didn't fully understand. And I was, I was being a little bit cowardly. I didn't want to quite lean into learning exactly how does that underlying system work? And usually it's something around a time zone or it's something around latency or something that's a couple layers deeper into the system that maybe I just wanted to work. But in reality, I need to understand how it works. So it's always been good news when I handle flapping tests because it's usually meant that there's, it's not only been easier to concentrate and do a good job day to day, but it's actually uncovered things I've been avoiding in my, in my work. And for me, it really depends on the type of test it is. If it is a feature test or a system test where it's using Selenium or something, that always seems to be sketchy or flaky at best for me, where sometimes it'll pass, sometimes it'll fail. But it's usually having to do something with the DOM loading or something with uh, the actual Selenium, not anything to do with the actual test or with the code itself. So there's one gem that I found, RSpec Retry, which I'll use on just feature tests so that it'll try it multiple times to see if it passes before it just gives me a hard fail. Yeah, I found that when a test is flapping, it's usually due to, like you said, Dave, either like something to do with time or something to do with the database or some kind of race condition, something like that. They usually happen in feature tests as opposed to to model level tests because there's more room for that kind of thing. Since you asked about anti-patterns, I'll mention at least one more thing. Um, Also, since you asked about like a client server application where you have test coverage on your your API, but not test coverage on your client-side JavaScript application, that to me is certainly an anti-pattern. 
And what I've found that can address this is I used to, I used to write applications that were uh, rails and angular a lot. And so I had a really hard time testing my whole application together. At first I tried making my angular application drive the rails application, but that turned out to be really cumbersome because it's like, how do I, how do I spin up my test data and stuff like that? when I'm trying to manipulate it from the angular side, that was really awkward and difficult. So then I came at it from the other end and said, instead of having my angular application drive my rails application, why don't I have the rails application drive the angular application? And at one point I came to the realization that, wait a second, the fact that this is a client server application is just kind of a detail. This is really no different from testing a traditional Rails application that happens to have some JavaScript in it. So what I wrote was a test suite that at the beginning would run a couple commands to build my Angular application. And then I would just use Capybara to test the Angular app. Um, and then at the end of it, tear it all down. And that actually worked out pretty well. Do you find when you spend time on the integration test that you start to back off of your unit test, like the, the rigor you apply to your unit testing? Well, it depends on the context that we're talking about. Um, if, if I'm doing that kind of testing on an Angular Rails single page application, then in those cases, I'll just rely on the feature tests to exercise the client side code. Um, but if we're talking about a traditional application, then no, I, I, there's never a case where I'll, I'll just have feature tests or I'll have a large number of feature tests on my Rails application and then kind of ease up on the model tests. Because um, in any case, I definitely find a huge value in having model level tests on the Rails application. What's your advice on using strategies like fakes or mocks? Do you overdo it? Is it an anti-pattern? What, what should we be doing there? Good question. And it's interesting that we were talking about Angular just now, because going to the Angular world, maybe understand some certain, certain things about mocks that I didn't before. Um, so there's this, there's this like parable that somebody shared me, shared with me one time. There's an old fish and a young fish swimming in the water. The old fish said to the young fish, how's the water today? And the young fish said, what's water? And so I feel like we can be like that sometimes like, I've been in the Rails world for like six years. Before that, I did PHP. Um, and I don't really have a lot of experience with technologies outside of Rails, not recent experience anyway. And so kind of the way it is, I don't even, I don't even realize certain things because I don't know any other way. With Rails, everything's available all the time. Um, like you don't have to, you don't have to include a certain model if you're in another uh, model file because everything's always auto-included. And that's super convenient, but I think it can also lead to some kind of, um, I don't know if sloppiness is the word, but when I started doing Angular tests, I found that if I wanted to test a certain model that depended on a certain other model, I really felt it. Like I had to include the other file that had that other model um, and there was, it, it just became really, um, really obvious that I was bringing in a dependency into, into my test. And if I had 
a, a uh, if I had a class that depended on another class, which in turn depended on another class, things would get really messy really quickly. But in Rails, you don't really have that mechanism that makes that issue really obvious to you. Um, so having said all that, I pretty much write my Rails tests just like everybody else does, and I don't make heavy use of, of mocks. But going to that Angular world started to make me think that, hey, maybe this having everything included everywhere is, is not such an advantage in this context. And it's probably a good idea to start thinking about testing things more in isolation. So we kind of skipped over uh, that one question of what led you into specializing in tests and teaching others about it. Oh, yeah, good question. So I've been trying to find something to specialize in for a long time so I can kind of become known as the guy in a certain area. For a while for me, that was Angular and Rails. I wrote this ebook called Angular for Rails Developers. And that was kind of successful in a way. The book sold some copies and stuff like that, and it was genuinely helpful to people. But then I decided that I didn't like Angular anymore, and I didn't like single-page applications. And so I didn't want to teach something that I didn't believe in. And then, honestly, the way that I settled on this... Uh, this focus is that I took an entrepreneurship class and it taught some research techniques. And I, I went on like the Ruby subreddit and stuff like that. And I started looking around and seeing what are the issues that people are having the most trouble with in rails. I took a whole bunch of notes and I stepped back and I saw people have a really hard time with testing, particularly they have a really hard time going from that stage where you're, you're totally lost and clueless and you don't know where to start. Um, to getting to that point where you can confidently, confidently write tests. And I went through this transition myself, just like probably everybody does. And so I figured that was something that I, that I could help with. So that's kind of how I arrived at that. Nice. Yeah, I noticed in your course, you've got a section on how to choose a test framework, which is kind mm -hmm. of right, right at the early stage, right? From, from those that don't have much exposure to it. And I know Ruby's got several options on this front. What is your advice for, for digging in and actually choosing your starting point? What, what test framework should we be using? Good question. So with any technology decision, there's kind of two factors that I consider. One is the technical merits of that framework. And the other is just like the realities in the marketplace. So for example, today, if I were going to choose a uh, front-end JavaScript framework to use, I would probably look at like Angular and React and Vue because those are kind of the dominant three as far as I can tell. Um, and I would assess the technical merits, but also I would say, okay, React is like way more in demand than Angular or Vue as far as I can tell. So I'm probably just going to pick React, uh, even if it's not necessarily my favorite from a technical perspective. So that's kind of the same approach I took with, with testing frameworks. I chose RSpec because RSpec is what most Rails developers I've encountered use. It's what most employers seem to want. It's what they expect you to know. And so that's one of the big reasons I chose RSpec. Having said that, I have worked with TestUnit a little bit um, and Minitest a little bit, and I prefer the syntax of RSpec. I like the domain-specific language. And it's kind of like the DSL part of it is like either the, the big benefit or the big deal breaker for anybody who really likes it or really doesn't like it. 
uh, me personally, I'm somebody who really likes it. Yeah, I actually had a conversation with a, a beginner that had was comparing mini test to RSpec and test unit and you know some of the other options that are out there. And surprisingly to me, for the beginner, he came back and said that uh, the DSL was what really appealed to him. It actually made it grokkable uh, for him, which I know the internals of RSpec can get pretty complex, but uh, the surface area API is what made it approachable for him. Yeah, and something that I kind of wish I had done a little earlier with RSpec is like learn how the, the mechanics of that DSL work. Because I've discovered since then that most Ruby DSLs are just a series of like functions and the functions uh, might take a block or something like that. So just like understanding the concept of a block and then understanding that like it, it like the, the keyword it in RSpec is just a function. Um, and like you could put parentheses in certain places and, and kind of step back and see, oh, these are just functions that take blocks. I think that stuff is pretty helpful to understand. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to go back and revisit something that you had mentioned before, where you, when you pivoted to specializing in tests versus teaching single page app development, uh, sounded like uh, single page apps were not 100% palatable. And I just noticed a tweet from you uh, where you uh, said you're working on a new Rails project with very little JavaScript and what a wonderful experience that is proving to be for you mm -hmm. at the moment. So can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah. So the way I look at single page applications is this. There are certain use cases where it, it makes a lot of sense to have a single page application. Like back in the day, Gmail was the classic example of kind of like one of the first popular single page applications out there. That use case makes total sense. But at some point, it's like the internet formed the opinion that traditional web applications were the old outdated way and single page applications were the new modern right way. And so we have people writing single page applications for just like these really simple CRUD apps, even just like internal back office CRUD apps, which is such incredible overkill. Um, and it adds so much uh, um, technical overhead to any project and makes everything so much more costly to maintain. And that just makes me uh, super sad because um, I, I don't think that most applications should be single page applications. I think traditional applications are just fine. And in most cases, a lot better and a lot cheaper to maintain. You know, there's this old saying, I, 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 this reminds me, I don't have, this old saying used to go, nobody gets fired for using Microsoft. And before that, I heard it used to be that nobody gets fired for using IBM. There's nothing wrong with those things if that's what you're trying to do. But it's probably the same for single page apps as well. If you make it pretty, you make it look complete, you know, it looks great. Even if it's bloated, even if it's too much, even if it's misaligned with the problem, you know, sometimes we, 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 uh, I, I've noticed that people get, um, they make decisions in order to <laughs> not be criticized, you know, but if I just do a simple CRUD app that might look a little bit half finished, um, but it does the job well. And to have the confidence that, yeah, but it does the job well. And it does, you know, that, that that's what I'm here to do. And, and that's not our knee-jerk reaction. You know, we tend to grab big, big frameworks, big tools, big things that nobody will criticize us for. And if that's what we need, great. And if it's not, great. Let's do, the, do something pragmatic. 
Yeah, and I think it's also a belief among developers that old equals outdated, which is it's it's a distinction that's important to realize that old does not necessarily mean outdated. Sometimes old just means you know mature. We've we established this particular thing. I don't know. Let's take a, an easy example like object-oriented programming. That's an old idea. That doesn't mean it's outdated. That's just one of the building blocks of of programming. But certainly the old equals outdated idea, especially among newcomers to the profession, is a very pervasive idea. And, and that's probably where a lot of the prolification of single-page applications comes from, I think. Yeah, I think it suffers a bit from, from this mindshare. You know, when all the mindshare is, is lumped over um, to one thing, but you never get fired for choosing Oracle or Microsoft. You don't get fired for choosing AWS. Uh, the current trend is you don't, you're not going to get fired for choosing, you know, a, a large front end stack uh, to build your SPA, right? Yeah, I'm not sure I like this analogy because it's like IBM, Microsoft, these are like safe traditional choices, whereas single page applications, this is like the hot new cutting edge thing. And it's not safe either because like uh, a year or two years or three years down the road, things are going to like not necessarily grind to a halt, but get really slow. I've certainly been there where an application was built as an SPA. It was built on what was really hot in 2014 and now it's 2017 or whatever. And, and things are like, you, you, you can't attract developers anymore because you're, you're built on Angular and everybody wants to do React now, but it's too expensive to switch away. And so you're just like stuck holding the bag of this, uh, application that was built in technologies that were really fashionable two or three or five years ago, but are really unpalatable today. Um, and now a lot of the web applications in the world are like that. And it's, uh, it's, it's not a great situation. No, I tend to agree, agree with that sentiment. It is, uh, it is a bit unfortunate that the, the complexity has, has just become so pervasive. And it's the first thing everyone reaches for. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, to, so PSA for me, a traditional Rails application with no JavaScript is fine. Yep. So I tend to think of SPAs. If you're going to create a new Rails application and the first thing you do is load in React, that's your first sign of premature optimization. Yep, I would tend to agree. Um, now I'm getting to the point in this application I'm... I'm building, you know, Nate mentioned that tweet I tweeted earlier about building a greenfield application with very little JavaScript, getting to the point where I am pulling in a little bit of JavaScript, like I'm implementing a type ahead field. But I definitely am much preferring the approach of sprinkling a little bit of JavaScript onto the foundation of a Rails application as opposed to building the foundation on JavaScript. Absolutely. I think that's where you and I definitely agree on. And uh, one of our earlier episodes back in 2017, late 2017, we had DHH on here. And that was his sentiment as well is, you know, use JavaScript sprinkles. And that's where stimulus, you know, he had mentioned about that. And that's where it really kind of came to light where they're not adding in a huge framework to do just little bits and pieces of, you know, real-time interaction on their website. Yeah, I think that idea is really interesting. Have any of you guys used Stimulus very much yet? I played around with it quite a bit. 
And its core principle or its main thing that it does is manipulating existing elements on the page. So it's not, uh, it's not going out and fetching or listening for uh, different things coming in from the server. But once stuff has been rendered on the page, then it's going to be able to manipulate it or have event listeners to uh, react to them. And it pairs really nicely with Turbolinks. So if you do have something where you are making a Ajax request, it's coming back and then pushing stuff to your page or table, then stimulus, if you have listeners or controllers on those, then it's automatically just going to kick in and start doing what the code is supposed to do. It's really nice. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I like the idea of being able to just manipulate your existing DOM structure and stuff like that. Um, I'm very afraid of like committing to a certain framework just because things are so fast moving in the JavaScript world. It might sound based on what I've said in this episode so far that I like have something against JavaScript. I totally don't have anything against JavaScript. I just certainly have a fear of, of baking some uh, really fashionable technology into my application such that it's really hard to change it later when something else becomes fashionable. But if you, if you do it in such a way, like I, I would have no hesitation to include React in an application that I built today, just as long as I did it in such a way that in three or five years or whatever, when I wanted to migrate to something else, it would be no more expensive than it had to be to make that migration. Have you found that kind of applying the JavaScript sprinkle approach has been more difficult to test or easier? I think it's easier to test. The, the significant thing in my mind is whether you have a client server architecture or not. Because uh, when you have a client server architecture, especially when your client side application and your uh, server side application live in different repositories, that's pretty challenging to test. But if you have your JavaScript sprinkled in your Rails application and it all lives in one place, then that's much easier to test. Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers. Or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. And just a off-topic shout-out to the Rails team. They are including Action Cable Test, a way to test Action Cables or WebSockets within a Rails application, which you know I've been playing around with pretty heavily. And it's just one of those things where I've avoided testing just because, you know, how do you really test a WebSocket? So they are including that in a future release, which I'm really excited to dig into. So what other kind of testing frameworks are those? Let's say if you are not the developer on the application, but maybe you're a QA person or someone else who is a stakeholder in the project, and they've been tasked with doing some testing on the application. So what options do they really have? So a person who's not a developer and they're responsible for, for testing an application? Mm-hmm. Okay. 
So I don't want to get too far out of like my area of expertise. And I've never sat in that role of an external QA person, but I did talk to a, a dedicated QA engineer on my show recently. And I asked him just like, Hey, what do you do? Cause I don't really understand what a QA person even does exactly from my experience years ago, kind of interacting a little bit with some QA people. I noticed they would sit and click through like written scenarios that they had. It wasn't automated. They would just like manually test the UI. I asked if he, he did that kind of stuff. He said, no, all the testing he does is manual. And it sounded like he pretty much did the same stuff that, that a Rails developer would do if, if he or she were writing tests. So he would write uh, Capybara tests. He used something called Site Prism, which I had heard of but never used yet, um, and various other technologies to just write automated tests. So I've never sat in that role, but it sounds like it's very similar to, to what a developer writing test would do, just more of the writing test part and the less writing features part of it. Yeah, from my experience, we've had some non-developer-minded people write the pseudocode or cucumber tests. And from those cucumber tests, which is a much more plain English kind of, you know, uh, stepping through a process or a feature test. And they would write all of those. And then a developer would actually put the logic behind those specific tests. So that's one way we've approached it. Another was uh, I played around with the cypress.io application. And that's a really neat one for kind of building out your tests. It's a, I think they have a free tier which supports like 500 recorded tests. And it allows you to basically click through a application. It kind of records it and you can kind of replay it to see the expected elements on a page. So it does require a stand-up or your application to be stood up somewhere for it to go through and test. But it's one of those things that I played around with as well. And if you are doing the step-by-step QAing part of things, then this could be a way that you could essentially automate that just so you have consistency and repeatability with your tests. Dave, I'm curious about something you mentioned in the case of a non-programmer helping write test cases. Was that in a larger organization or what was that team structure like when you were working in that way? It's a larger organization. So each, you know, you have about one QA person per two to three developers. Okay. Yeah, because I've heard of those cases where where a non-programmer is writing tests, like specifically with Cucumber, but I've never uh, worked in a team that operated that way myself. I've only worked in places where where the developers are writing their own tests. And if there's a Q, QA person, they're kind of not really integrated with the team. And it's it's not really, I didn't have visibility into what kind of work they were doing. Um, it seems like that kind of workflow happens more in larger organizations than in small teams. Yeah. And it's, re- it's a, actually a really nice thing to have because in a lot of cases, we are needing to crank out some features or bug fixes, and we have a good idea of what's going on or wrong with the application. So we can quickly get in there, put in some unit tests or tests in there to make sure that our logic is good. But then they are going to also go through and test edge cases or different kind of combinations or click through. And they often will expose different kind of scenarios that 
our unit tests or our uh, automated tests were lacking. So it's not that we didn't have a complete code coverage in that area, but they just uncovered different issues within the application. It's really no different than you going through launching the application, testing it out to see about, you know, clicking through to see if you see any bugs or anything. That makes sense. They're good at breaking things. In my experience with Cucumber is that the the organization has to have the right culture to support that. Um, yeah. I've often started with, uh, with good intentions uh, on that front, and then ultimately it all comes back or did come back in a few scenarios where the developers just owned all of it. Yep, that's my experience too. I, we've often done that too, where the developer takes it back. But, but what I've noticed is that the, the problem that really needs to be solved is the engagement problem. And if it's a small team, it's easy to be engaged and to know what each other's doing. And if, we, if not, we're going to have to find a way. We'll have a conversation, we'll go out to lunch, do a brown bag lunch, um, do some testing, show people quickly and often progress and get feedback. But that engagement level is really what seems to sink a pro- project. And if, if the team's too large or the organization too fast moving or too distributed, it's really sometimes hard. Not like physically distributed, but we all have very distinct, um, distant jobs from each other. But that engagement level is is hard to to do without something like a cucumber or a some tool to bring us together. When when you say engagement, Dave, do you mean like engagement between the the development team and the stakeholders? The engagement inside the development team itself, or something else? Yeah, both. I would say I would say the 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 problems that I see when when that's not there is that it's missed expectations or so called bug fixes that don't fix it or um, people that build things that never get used, or um, people that have higher expectations than can be delivered, um, either with time or features. And so coming together, whether it's on the dev team or external to the stakeholders, or really out to the customer is, you know, whoever the customer is, internal or external, you know, that's really where it matters because that's that's when we, we tighten the loop and we've actually just created what's needed and not, and not all the other things. Yeah, that's a really tough one when when you're build either building things that nobody uses or like you you go and do your requirements gathering and you think you understand what needs to be built and then you go and build it and you deliver it and when it gets into the user's hands they're like what's this? This isn't what I expected to get. And I think that's that usually represents a failure somewhere along the way of um at least the dev- design phase of uh there is either too much of a game of telephone or not rigorous enough usability testing around the design to make sure that what's being built actually matches up with, with what the user needs in order to do their job. And it's interesting too, that, you know, if we think of design in terms of really creating the pieces that are, are rigid and the pieces that are flexible, um, you know, testing seems to help us figure that out too you know, as we, we start to figure out, all right, well, we're getting bugs in this area or we're getting a lot of feature requests in this area. So we didn't design it very well here. You know, it turns out we thought this is just going to be straightforward. And it turns out we need a lot more flexibility in these, these corners of the app. And so we, we build it in, we, we, we revise it, but, but getting, getting that input, having, having a way to, <laughs> to at least iterate towards it. It's, it's tough to know it up front, but, but recognizing the problems and, 
So this might be a good segue into something else I wanted to touch on, which is the concept of continuous delivery and continuous deployment. Because if you, let's say you build a feature and you deliver the wrong thing. Well, that's of course a failure, but the, the cost that it takes to recover from that failure depends a lot on your cycle length. So if you deploy once every six months and you have some big long cycle of the design and development and testing, that whole thing takes six months. Then if you fail on January 1st and deliver something that doesn't quite hit the mark, the soonest you can correct that is July 1st and six months from now. But if, if you deploy at the other, at the other uh, extreme, you know, if, if you deploy many times a day, then you can start to recover from that failure almost immediately. Um, and it almost, not almost, it also means that the, uh, the impact of any particular failure is, is likely to be lower. Because if you spend six months building the wrong thing, then you have a lot of time to go in the wrong direction with that thing and release something that is way off the mark, as opposed to if you spend three days building the wrong thing and re release that small feature, you find out much earlier, oh, we're on the wrong track here. We need to do something different. Um, and the way that relates to testing is that in order to get that security you need to, to release multiple times a day or whatever it may be, uh, having good automated test coverage can really go a long way toward, toward getting that security. Jason, have you, um, do you have recommendations in terms of what the pacing should be like on a CICD uh, for a given product? I mean, how, how often um, should we be deploying uh, through that system per day? or per week or per month? I can't think of any reason why the more the better isn't, uh, isn't the way to go. At the place I most recently worked, we would deploy several times a day. And that was great. That was much better than, I don't know, a certain, ex a certain experience I had prior to that where we would release something like every six weeks, except we wouldn't really release every six weeks because every time we tried to do a release, um, there was too many problems with integrating everybody's work and making sure we could safely deploy and stuff like that. Um, so really the more, the better. And the reason why I think that is because of course, the more frequently you're deploying, the less stuff you're deploying at a time. And so the less stuff there is to go wrong and all that kind of stuff. That's been my best experience. Yeah. I would echo that experience as well. Um, more frequently, the better, and more more people you get involved. Uh, ideally, you get a new hire, and and they get their first deploy out first day, right? Yeah, and I guess there must be some kind of speed limit to that. You know, de deploying every five seconds probably wouldn't make any sense. But you know, pretty much as as fast as you're completing complete features, uh, that's that's probably the speed at which deployment makes the most sense. So obviously some stuff would slip through the, the, your testing mechanics in the uh, continuous integration run. Um, is there ever a scenario where you would recommend uh, foregoing tests or maybe kind of loosening the, the rigid uh, practice of testing everything? Yeah, so I certainly don't shoot for testing everything. I test most things. The things that I don't really test are the things that I've like never, ever screwed up. So in the application I'm writing right now that I've been working on last few weeks, I don't write tests for like every single presence validation, for example. 
because that's just something that there's there's such little happening there and there's such a small risk of regression that I don't see a lot of value in writing tests for every one of those. For some of the, the presence validations, I'm writing tests, but not every single one. Uh, so that's an example of, of where I, I don't write tests for that stuff usually. But most stuff I think should be tested. And I think that's... A- Good segue Sorry. into also how you develop your code. Because if you were writing a huge spaghetti mess of code, that's going to be much harder to test. So when you're writing a class or function, I think it's also important to think about you're going to be testing this later or tomorrow you're going to be writing the test for this feature. So you want to make sure that you're designing your application or your code to a point where it's going to be easier to test. And that means don't put so much logic into a single method. Don't have too much going on in your models or your controllers, but really break things out into smaller components that are going to be individually much easier to test. Yeah, and it might be helpful if I just kind of briefly touch on like, what are the tests that I'll write when I'm creating a new model? And this is fresh in my mind because I'm, I'm writing this Greenfield app, which Greenfield is something I haven't done in so long. But I'll generate a scaffold and then I will write a feature test for the creation of that record. And then what I found I, I need to do also is, in addition to writing the test that, that creates a new record, uh, making sure I hit the case where I try to submit an invalid record and then fill out the fields validly and then submit. Because what I found is that, um, let's say you have a select input, maybe you have to select a uh, state for a user, like a US state. I had a case where I would create this new record, my, my feature spec passed fine for creation. But then I noticed later when I, when I had an invalid form and I went to submit again, my states weren't populated. Uh, because I was only putting in my controller, I was only putting in the new action, the place where it set all my states. And so I, when I click submit, it would try to create it. It would fail and present me with that form again. The states were missing that time. And so I wrote another test that covered that case. First submit invalid then try to submit again. Um, so I'll put those few like feature level specs in place for that new model but not much else right off the bat because when you're first um, generating a scaffold, there's not really anything all that meaty to start testing yet. Um, another thing that I'll, that I'll usually start writing tests for is, is uniqueness validations because that's something, that's something that's really important. And then if there's any kind of, um, you know, I, I won't write tests for the presence validations every single time, but a lot of time if there's something that, that is really critical, I, I will. Um, and I like to use the uh, shoulda matchers for, for those kind of uh, validation tests because that makes it so you can write those tests really concisely. All right. Well, is there anything else that we should add to testing a Rails application? Sure. I want to touch on, on maybe two things real quick, the walking skeleton and small stories. So again, some of these things that we're, that we're talking about, the idea is uh, practices that synergize with automated testing. So there's this book I read a few years ago, Growing Object-Oriented Software Guided by Tests. 
which if somebody's trying to get started with automated testing, that is a really good resource. That was when I read it was when I was trying to get started with automated testing. Um, and it talks about this idea of a walking skeleton. So the idea is instead of trying to deploy to production the first time, like right before your marketing launch or whatever, at the end of the project, deploy to production like on day one. And the idea behind that is that the stress is low at the beginning of the project. There's still plenty of time, plenty of budget left. And if you're going to have any issues deploying to production, better to get those out of the way really early on than at crunch time. And then from that point on, it's just iterative. Uh, at the end of every cycle, you just release to your production environment. And then on your last release before the go live date or whatever, it's just another release, just like every other release you've been doing up to that point. That can be a great technique to, uh, to reduce the risk of the project. Um, I guess the last point that I'd like to touch on is just the, the importance of small stories. This ties back into the ideas of continuous deployment and continuous delivery. If you have stories that are, that are really long running, I'm, I'm sure we've all worked on sprints where like we commit to 15 stories for that sprint and then you reach the end of the sprint and you've only completed four of your 15 stories and the remaining 11 have to be carried over to the next sprint. And then the next sprint, it's kind of a similar story where you only complete a fraction of your stories. If you make your stories way smaller, then they can be a lot more predictable. It's a lot harder to, to underestimate a small story than a big story. And also making your story really crisply defined. So instead of just having like half a sentence for your story description, have some bullet points that, that make it really easy to answer the question of, is this story done or not done? Ideally, somebody from outside could look at that story who doesn't have context on it and be able to run down that list and check for each bullet point and say, okay, if all these things are done, then this story is done. If not, then it's not, rather than having to read the description being like, okay, uh, having to make a judgment call as to whether that story is, is done or not. Yeah. I'm in favor of small stories. It definitely makes you feel a lot more productive too, instead of spending two months working on a single feature. Yeah, absolutely. I think well, also Kanban style uh, project management work tends to lend itself better to this type of, uh, these types of stories where when you're running a sprint, normally you're trying to, you know, calculate the exact amount of time that you're going to have and estimate based on, you know, how much outside influence is going to come in and, and bother you or whatnot. Uh, so when you have Kanban, it's like, okay, well, we can, we know that we can get this amount done. And then if you have more, then just keep pulling off the top, right? I, I've also found that, that Kanban does help on the story stress of getting things done within the exact amount of time. I like the cleanliness of if it, the story's small enough, if you can pull off the top, pull off the top if I can be explicit about what I'm working on, then that frustration of guys, I'm really, I am working hard. It's just, you can't see it yet. That, that just doesn't belong in a development team, you know, just working hard on something and being separated from people is, um, is an added pattern too, I believe. And, and so keeping it short, keeping it succinct, delivering it often, being able to be, you not have to carry that burden. I, I hate that feeling at the end of the day. And I, and I'm going home or I'm done or I don't want to quit because I'm not quite finished with that feature. 
and um, yet I'm going to do it. And um, so having it just too big of a chunk is, is um, it just, it carries more weight to it than just, it's hard to communicate. It's, it's hard for the developer to, 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 to carry that burden for a long time as well. Yeah, something I read in the book, The Phoenix Project, which we were talking about pre-show a little bit, it said that the work in progress is a bad thing and you want to eliminate the possibility of having work in progress any place you can. I never really thought about it in those terms before, but I think that makes a lot of sense. You want to have as few balls in the air as possible. And if you have smaller stories, it's a lot easier to, to make sure that you have as few balls in the air as possible at any time. All right. Anything else we should add? I'm good. All right, Jason. Well, if people want to find you online, where should they go? Sure. So a good place is codewithjason.com. And then I'm on Twitter. If you like following boring people on Twitter, it's just Jason Sweat on Twitter. And then my podcast is the Ruby Testing Podcast. Awesome. Well, let's move on to some picks. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter DevChat in the How Did You Hear About Us section. David, do you have any picks? I do. This has been a great conversation. It reminded me of some of my favorite things ever. And one of them was the, the reference to This Is Water. So I've included a, a link that not only talks about that speech that David Foster Wallace gave, but a lot of other thoughts about it. You know, and, and it seems to really fit our testing. You know, the, the, we're aware of our environment. We're aware of of what we're doing and what, what what's actually happening. It takes the pressure down from what we're working on. So I'll, I'll send that link to that. And the other one is an older one. I've talked about it before, but it's the Richard Feynman approach to learning. And it fits really well with our conversation as well. It's just the simple writing down the concept I'm, I'm teaching. And then I write it down as if I'm without any special words. So there's a link there that that's an iterative approach to learning that reduces the pressure uh, around what we're working on. It makes it easier to actually have a firm grasp of the tools we're using. Uh, let's go ahead and jump over to Nate. Sure. First pick is pretty basic. Uh, I was experiencing some some pretty uh, rough burnout uh, a while back, and I took I, I have the immense privilege of taking a little bit of time off. So I took about three weeks with family and friends, and uh, it was so therapeutic. Um, if you have the ability to do that, I highly recommend uh, taking some time for yourself. Um, another uh, another pick, since we've been talking about testing, uh, a little uh, shameless self-promotion, um, and I, I apologize for, 
for having been one of these guys that writes their own test framework, but I did write uh, a test framework called uh, PryTest. And um, it's just a, a, a simple, uh, very small, lightweight test framework. And it kind of follows this red-green refactor type pattern, but as opposed to when you when the test fails, typically what happens is you see a um, an error emit to the screen, and then you've got to kind of dig into the test, find out where it failed, why it failed, maybe even put in some uh, put statements or even put in an explicit binding pry. Pry test actually does that for you. So on a test fail, it'll just drop you into a pry session right on the failing assert. Hmm. Um, so it's been fun. I kind of dogfooded that on on some of my small gems, but uh, it's not uh, it's not really actively used by very many folks. Uh, but it's been it's been a fun thought experiment for me. Awesome! I'll have to check that out. And Eric, so I got two picks real quick. When we we're talking earlier about uh, testing for non-developers, one of the things that came to my mind, which I've often pointed other people to, is an app called Fake. I've been using this app off and on for so many years now, and it's really old. But what it is, it's a programmable app that you can get on your Mac or Windows. Actually, no, I think it's Mac only. And you can set up using uh, this, this wizard all these interactions with the website, and then you could have tests built around it so that, for example, if you launch a new thing on a staging server or whatever, a non-developer can download this app, create all these different test suites on this just using drag and drop, and then they hit play and it'll tell you if it's going to work or not. It's essentially a, a client-side uh, Selenium tool, which is fairly powerful. The problem with it is that it's built on Safari. And I'm not sure that's a problem or not, but it doesn't. I mean, a lot of our apps nowadays are really targeting Chrome. So if that is an issue, then that's a deal breaker there. But that's one of them. The other one that I want to pick is the Ruby Hack Conference, which is coming up in April. Um, it's just been announced that uh, Matt's will be there as the keynote speaker. And it's April 4th through 5th in Salt Lake City. And they now have it uh, open for... Uh, uh, for speakers to to submit their their talks. So, anyway, the the website is rubyhack.com. That's all I got. Cool. And I'll jump in there with one non tech related pick. So my wife and I have started running, or rather, walking around the park near our neighborhood. And I had been using tennis shoes to walk around the neighborhood, and my feet would just be sore and, you know, it's just not a very fun experience. So she told me to go to the shoe store and buy a pair of Brooks. So I did. I got them tried and fitted. I had to walk on a treadmill for them to actually look at my gate to find the right pair of shoes for me. But once they did, I tried them on. They felt great. We went for a walk later that day. And I really feel like I was going one and a half times the speed and with a lot less fatigue. So shoes, shoes, shoes. Shoes really matter and you're walking, and they're really important. So much like your phone, you were on your phone all day, you know, practically. So it's a good thing to invest in. Well, you're on your feet all day too, or you should be sometimes. And so shoes are a good thing to invest in. So her killer argument was, you don't cheap out on your phone, so why are you cheaping out on your feet? So I had to lay my $10 pair of, sh pair of shoes aside. And Jason, do you have any picks? I sure do. So I like to pick eccentric picks sometimes. And so my first pick will be a, a pick that is 
biscuit related. It's been a dream of mine for a long time to successfully bake a biscuit that actually, you know, is a, a legit biscuit that, that rises and is not undercooked and not like the, the hockey puck type thing that I've, that I've made a lot of times. Um, and I finally found a good biscuit recipe. There's this cookbook called the food lab by J Kenji Lopez alt, I think is the guy's name, which is a really interesting name. Um, it has a fantastic biscuit recipe. Uh, I tried it for, I think the third time last night, got pretty close to the ideal biscuit, but every time I make the recipe, something, something different goes wrong each time. So, uh, I think this time my biscuit diameter was too wide and the biscuits were too thick. So for all those listeners whose interests, you know, intersect with the Ruby on rails and also biscuits, there's probably maybe four listeners out here who, who share this interest with me. Um, there's your pick. The other one I'll mention is that same book I mentioned earlier, a growing object oriented software guided by test. That book is super helpful. I'm going through that book a second time now and probably learning even more than I did the first time I read it. <laughs> I think laugh at that. the most, I, that's one of the most unique picks we've had. Let's <laughs> say my perfect biscuit is the opposite. Uh, where I love a drop biscuit. I'll make the dough just right, and then I do a drop, so it's really, really fluffy. So I don't cut it or roll it. It just makes it more fluffy. <laughs> so mine would be the anti-pattern. <laughs> I've never heard of a drop biscuit. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, you just pull out the dough. And you, you handle it just as much as you barely have to, and then, then you just leave it there. It, it makes it more round than flat, but it makes it really fluffy. I think a good old fashioned KFC biscuit is pretty hard to beat. That's pretty amazing. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thanks for being on the show, Jason. Good talk. And we'll catch you later. Bye, guys. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.